0: Welcome to Bite-Size Battles As thunder roared from the heavens and thick, wind-driven rain lashed his face, the Roman governor of Germania, Publius Quinctilius Varus, must have wondered if he had made a mistake. A revolt in the north had broken out and he'd chosen to take all three of his legions to quell it. A little overkill for a small rebellion of one petty Germanic tribe, he now thought. One legion would have done with one of his underlings to command it. He should have been tucked up in his villa in a warm bath. But no, he'd wanted a show of Roman strength and a massacre at the end of it just to encourage any other Germanic tribes thinking of revolt to think again. He'd done the same with the Jews of Jerusalem when he had governed Syria, which had seemed to do the trick. Roman law and order had to be obeyed and seen to be. So here he was, stuck in a dark, dense forest, with a storm so fierce it was breaking the tops of the high trees right off and throwing them carelessly among his men. His ally and personal friend, The Germanic prince Arminius had told him this was the best route to take, though, and he trusted him with his life. They had been pals for a long time, and this was the land of his tribe, the Cheruski. No one knew the country better, so if this was the quickest way to get to those stinking rebels in the north, so be it. Endure the storm, crush the revolt, and be back in that warm bath before you can say Pax Romana. But then, amidst the howling of the wind, came another kind of howl altogether. And just as quickly as Varus had heard it, it was gone, only to be replaced by an entire chorus of gut-loosening shrieks. He looked back down the ragged lines of his men struggling through the trees with wagons and unarmed camp followers, and watched in disbelief as a volley of javelins tore into dozens of them. Varus blinked in shocked silence, mouth agape, as hundreds of long-haired barbarians emerged from the forest at the run, long swords and axes dripping with rain and hate. He swung his eyes in every direction trying to decide what to do, with one question sharply flashing into his mind, where was Arminius? Welcome to the seventh episode of Secret Warfare. Arminius, and Rome. Around the year 12 BC, things were hotting up on the Rhine. The Roman Empire of Gaul on one side of the river was pressed right up against powerful and fiercely independent Germanic tribes on the other. Roman imperial pretensions on Germania and Germanic pillaging raids into Gaul were stoking the rivalry. Tensions between the two were now devolving into skirmishes, and skirmishes degenerating into warfare. And when, five years earlier in 17 BC, three Germanic tribes wiped out the Roman Fifth Legion and captured its venerated eagle, the Roman Emperor Augustus decided enough was enough. In 12 BC then, Augustus sent his legions across the Rhine and began a series of Roman wars in Germania which lasted until 6 AD. Aside from the still-resisting Marcomanni, the Romans considered Germania to be pacified, if not conquered. But in the process of this subjugation of Germania, some of the warring tribes had switched sides, and preferring the benefits of Roman friendship over annihilation, became allies of Rome. One of these was the Cherusci, and a child prince of the Cherusci was Arminius. Sometime during the Germanic Wars, Arminius was handed over to the Romans as a hostage by his father, the Cherusci chieftain Sejima. It was a guarantee of good behaviour, but being a noble hostage of a now allied tribe was not a prison sentence. The Romans treated Arminius as their own. He was raised as a Roman, given a good education, military experience, Roman citizenship and the rank of equestrian. He was, in all but his barbarian ancestry, a Roman nobleman. When he came of age, he commanded troops for the Romans over a course of five years or so, and then Arminius was sent back to Germania in 6 AD. His job was to act as Roman ambassador to the Cherusci and other German tribes, and importantly, to be a key aide to the new governor of Germania, Publius Quinctilius Varus. Almost immediately, Arminius and Varus hit it off. The two became firm friends, and Varus saw Arminius as indispensable to bringing what he still considered to be unruly barbarians to heel. But there was a problem – Varus was a hard ass. He had gained a reputation in his previous governorships of Africa and Syria for harsh rule and high taxes. Many of the Germanic tribes had been won over to Roman friendship by diplomacy, trade and showing them the benefits of Roman ways slowly, over time and with respect. But when Varus became governor, he showed no respect at all, slammed them with high taxes and spoke down to them as petty subjects of the Roman Empire. And that didn't go down well at all. One of our main sources is a Roman historian called Cassius Dio. I'll let him fill you in. The barbarians were adapting themselves to Roman ways, were becoming accustomed to holding markets and were meeting in peaceful assemblages. They hadn't, however, forgotten their ancestral habits, their native manners, their old life of independence, or the power derived from arms. Hence, so long as they were unlearning these customs gradually, they were not disturbed by the change in their manner of life, and were becoming different without knowing it. But when Quinctilius Varus became governor of the province of Germania, he strove to change them more rapidly. Besides issuing orders to them as if they were actually slaves of the Romans, he exacted money as he would from subject nations. To this, they were in no mood to submit. End quote. In short, the Germanic tribes had been slowly Romanizing, but now Varus showed up like a bull in a china shop. He taxed them heavily. He treated them with indignity and disrespect, and instead of keeping Roman troops concentrated at just a few centres, he sent them out in small units to every town and village where they would keep a watch on the locals. Suddenly, Roman friendship was feeling every bit like an occupation. Arminius was troubled by what Varus was doing to his homeland. Essentially a deeply trusted Roman noble and ally, Arminius now found his heart itching for Germania. He knew his ancestry and he knew who his people were. In a contest for Arminius's loyalty between Rome and Cheruski, the Cherusci would always win. But the Cheruski alone could do nothing. Even if every Germanic tribe rose up in rebellion, they could do very little other than die. The Romans had a full eleven legions in the region, and even more auxiliaries. In all, around a 100,000 men of the Roman army were in Germania, and they had crushed every previous Germanic fight for independence. Think Arminius, think. Turning traitor was no small thing he would pay for even considering treachery with his life and maybe all of the Cheruskis too. Thankfully for him though, he didn't have to think for long. A huge uprising known as the Great Illyrian Revolt erupted in what today is essentially the Balkans and a full 8 of the 11 legions in Germania were sent to crush it. The mathematicians among you will have worked out that that left just 3 legions in germania and arminius spotted his opportunity he got to work in secret meeting with the leaders and nobles of the cheruski and other great germanic tribes he rustled them up with stories of varus's harshness but he barely needed to they knew all the stories and were already ripe for rebellion in the meantime Arminius kept feeding Varus reports of how submissive, peaceful and pliant the various tribes were. Really, they were gearing up for war. But three legions and their auxiliaries still represented over 20,000 men of the most efficient and successful army of the ancient world. Arminius knew the Roman army well, knew its discipline, training, tactics and weaponry knew that in a pitched battle even three legions would be a fearsome challenge. While the Germanic tribes favoured individual skill in battle, the Romans fought as tight, cohesive units, the power of which was almost always impossible to resist by a mass of individuals. So Arminius hatched a plan to make sure the Romans weren't in tight, cohesive units. In fact, He planned to make sure they weren't ready for a fight at all. Just as Varus was marching his army back to camp close to the Rhine one day, Arminius rushed to his side, telling him that one of the tribes in the north of Germania had risen in revolt. He should march there right away to put this little impudence down, Arminius suggested, and he told him he would show him the way. What a nice man that Arminius was. Varus trusted him completely. Why wouldn't he? He spoke Latin fluently, conducted himself as a Roman, and had been loyal to Rome since childhood. Plus, he was a mate. So trusting was he that when a man tried to warn Varus it was a trap, he literally told him to shut up because he was just angry that Arminius was shagging his daughter. True story. Of course, the whole thing was a ruse, but ignorance is bliss or death in this case, and off they marched to confront the made up rebels. Even more happily for Arminius, he had plied Varus with so many tales of Cherusky loyalty and peacefulness that when he led the Romans through their territory, Varus felt no need to insist on usual military discipline. He allowed the men to essentially walk and drift rather than march in order, in a huge break from the standard Roman army protocol. Arminius was a master of deception. Troops became strung out, walking in small groups and sometimes as families. There were thousands of camp followers with the army, unarmed civilians of women and children, blacksmiths, carpenters, traders. The Roman army began to resemble a motley collection of stragglers rather than a professional fighting force. Meanwhile, the tribes gathered, and Arminius had made sure there were men in every town and village ready to eliminate any Roman soldiers there. This all had to be prearranged, with the leaders alone knowing the day and time they should begin the slaughter. In an age where instant communication was only the stuff of dreams, it all had to be coordinated in advance and then executed on trust. Everyone had to bring their swords down at the same time, without knowing that they had all done so, and without anyone, especially the Romans, knowing they were going to beforehand. It was a deadly, nerve-wracking game to play. This was the moment of truth and tension was high. Get it right, and Germania would strike a vicious blow for independence. Get it wrong, and they would all probably be dead before the year was out. Arminius took the Romans into the densely wooded and mountainous terrain of the Teutoburg forest in 9 AD. Cassius Dio says the forests were almost impenetrable. He goes on, They advanced in scattered groups over mountains which had an uneven surface broken by ravines, and trees grew close together and very high. Hence, the Romans were having a hard time of it, felling trees, building roads, and bridging places that required it. The Romans were having to manhandle wagons through this terrain. They had women and children and unarmed followers. And the soldiers themselves were wearing their heavy armour. It was the hike of nightmares, and in short, the army became quickly dispersed and rapidly exhausted. Arminius, ever the sly one, tells Varus he has to go off and gather allies for him en route, and takes the Germanic auxiliaries with him. Varus happily agrees, but now the Roman army has also lost its eyes and ears, because those auxiliaries were their scouts and guides. Arminius came back once to guide Varus a little more into the gaping jaws of his ambush, but then went off again. This time, he does not return a friend. Now, strung out over several kilometres, scattered and weary, the army heard the peal of thunder in the distance, the first patter of rain the first gust of wind. Perhaps Varus should have sensed the omens, because quickly dark and vicious clouds gathered and a ferocious storm broke upon the miserable Romans. Cassius Dio says, a violent rain and wind came up that separated them still further, while the ground that had become slippery around the roots and logs made walking very treacherous for them and the tops of the trees kept breaking off and falling down, causing much confusion. So now not only are the men exhausted, they're soaking wet, can barely walk on the sodden ground, and as if things weren't bad enough, had huge bits of tree falling on them. Arminius could hardly have wished for better conditions. The Germanic tribes loved the forest, were at home in it, Their fighting style matched the environment, and they were used to the rain and wind of Germania. At the appointed time, in the far-off distant towns across Germania, Roman soldiers everywhere fell under the frenzied knives of vengeful warriors. Now it was Arminius' turn. The time had come. They were ready. The Romans were trudging wearily. Sopping wet and desolate, when out of nowhere, guttural shouts of rage filled the forest, making men and women whip their heads up in alarm. Wide eyed, they scanned the forest, but the trees were breaking up the direction of the sound, making it seem as if it was coming from everywhere at once. Except, wait, it was coming from everywhere at once. As wind tore at clothes and hair, and rain-hammered desperate faces. Roman soldiers and terrified women and children looked aghast into the dense thickets of forest to see javelins fly from the dark. Thumping home and piercing armour, men were thrown from their feet as screams filled the air. The javelins were followed by hundreds of howling Germanic warriors, eyes aflame with hate, hair flying wildly. Long swords and axes glittered in the rain, and shocked Romans could scarcely comprehend what was happening before they were forced to frantically defend themselves. The ambush was perfect, striking multiple simultaneous points along the strung-out Roman lines, so that at each place the tribes had overwhelming numerical superiority. Imagine you're one of seven or eight men. You've been hiking for days in armour, building roads and bridges, struggling with wagons through dense forest and you're absolutely soaking wet in a gale-force storm when suddenly two of the men with you are hammered from their feet by javelins and now there's five of you left, facing 30 screaming Germans hurtling out of the forest depths with giant swords and axes. Centurions roared orders to close ranks and in some places they were able to but in most cases small groups of men as well as the camp followers were simply overwhelmed and either slaughtered where they stood or dragged off into the forest eventually when the local butchery was done the germans melted back into the forest only to emerge somewhere else and do exactly the same so long was the column of the roman legions that in the chaos and noise of marching through a storm many romans didn't even know that units ahead or behind them were being ambushed. Eventually, of course, it caused utter disarray and panic when word filtered to everyone that Germanic ghosts in the forest were striking out of the dark, killing everyone in sight, and then disappearing again. Varus did manage to gather the army to make camp at night, but this went on for three days, and for three days Arminius and his men tailed, Ambushed and fought them every step. I can barely imagine a worse nightmare. In desperation, it looks like the Romans tried to sneak away and lose their pursuers in the dark of the nights. We know this because of the written records, but also because a donkey harness was found in the archaeological digs at the likely site of battle. It had straw stuffed in it to stop it jingling. Cassius Dio says, but since they had to form their lines in a narrow space, they collided frequently with one another and the trees. It would have been pitch black, zero moonlight, can't-see-your-hand-in-front-of-your-own-face kind of dark. The wind is howling around you, rain smashing on armour, your senses are overwhelmed as you grasp ahead of you in the black, every snap of wood sending panic through your body. The only other sound you can hear is the fear-stricken pulse in your ears. But the attempts at sneaking away failed. Arminius knew where they were at all times, and every day he would snatch thousands more lives. By now the Romans had fled the forests and found themselves between marshland and a hill, which it was then discovered Arminius had prepared with defences beforehand there must have been an audible groan of dismay from the surviving Romans. Probably at least half of them had already died, and here on their route of escape were prepared defences. Was there no way out? Still, the Romans tried to break through, and the fighting was some of the most desperate I can imagine. Some tried to go through the marsh, only to be weighed down by their armour and drown. Finally, on the fourth day, the end. Cassius Dio says, They were still advancing when the fourth day dawned, and again a heavy downpour and violent wind assailed them, preventing them from going forward and even from standing securely, and moreover, depriving them of the use of their weapons. For they could not handle their bows or their javelins with any success, nor for that matter their shields which were thoroughly soaked. Their opponents, on the other hand, being for the most part lightly equipped and able to approach and retire freely, suffered less from the storm. The writing was on the wall. The already exhausted Romans had now been running for four rain-swept days and nights, under constant assault and with shredded nerves. Now they couldn't even use their weapons properly, with shields so waterlogged they could not be lifted, and bows so wet they could not be drawn. What cavalry was left now tried to make a break for it, disobeying Varus' commands to stay. But they galloped right into another ambush and were massacred to a man. Seeing the cavalry flee was the final straw for the Roman army, and now panic set in. Men began to abandon each other, fleeing in all directions, desperate to escape or hide. Only a very small number ever managed to. Varus did the only thing he could and committed suicide. Around 20,000 Roman soldiers were dead and captured, along with thousands more camp followers. Tribunes and centurions were sacrificed to gods their bodies piled into makeshift altars others were thrown into pits burned alive in cages or had their hands and feet cut off and eyes put out the whole battlefield was turned into a shrine by the germanic tribes as a thank you to the gods really the thanks should have and were placed at the feet of arminius to rome he became public enemy number 1 a traitor a scumbag liar and turncoat who lured Varus and his legions to their doom by betraying their trust and filling their ears with lies. Later Romans, though, led by Tacitus, openly admired him. Tacitus said, Arminius, without a doubt Germania's liberator, who challenged the Roman people not in its beginnings like other kings and leaders, but in the peak of its empire. In battles with changing success, undefeated in the war. To the Germanic tribes, for the next few years at least, Arminius was their saviour, and he led the fight for independence for some time before he was eventually assassinated in 21 AD. What Arminius achieved was through force of arms, but that was only made possible through guile, trickery, deceit. He was effectively a double agent, and used his position from within the Roman machine to devastating effect. Had he not been able to, the ambush could never have been achieved in the way it was. The ultimate legacy of the Battle of the Teutoburg Forest was that in the wars that followed, Rome decided it simply was not worth pushing past the Rhine, and that great river formed the eastern boundary of the Roman Empire. You can still see the difference that makes to this day in the Latin-based Romance language of France compared to the Germanic languages of Central Europe. Arminius, in his ultimate act of secret resistance, changed the future of Europe. He was one of the most successful double agents of all time. Join us next time for the epic story of the Arab revolt against Ottoman rule during World War I, and a previously unassuming officer of the British army who helped them. The mighty Ottoman Empire had held sway in the Middle East for hundreds of years, but now their support for Germany left them open to the British stoking the fires of Arab nationalism. When the ruler of the Hejaz province of what would become Saudi Arabia started an uprising, the British were quick to send him help in the form of Lawrence of Arabia. I'm Andrew McKenzie. Thanks for listening. See you then.